Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you on this uh, Wednesday afternoon, what could turn out to be an eventful uh, Wednesday in Alberta politics, an eventful day in Alberta politics. Uh, sounds as though the UCP caucus is still meeting, an in-person meeting in Calgary uh, to, I guess, among other things, well, probably exclusively, I suspect, uh, to make some decisions with regard to the future of the leader. Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta. Uh, clearly, Alberta is in a tough situation right now in this fourth wave that is swamping Alberta hospitals. And I mentioned earlier, there's quite a contrast. Ontario announcing today they're up to 299 people in hospital. Uh, as of yesterday, Alberta was uh, just a tick under 1,000. And will almost certainly be over that number today. There's a scramble within Alberta Health Services to find some capacity. It's likely going to involve moving some, if we can, ICU patients to other provinces, and hopefully not, but possibly having to enact triage protocol. So a lot of questions as to how we got to this point, and clearly a lot of fingers of blame being pointed at the Premier. There's certainly been that dynamic within the UCP of those who feel the Premier's done too much in terms of imposing uh, public health restrictions and those who feel he's done not enough. Uh, the fact that uh, the situation is as bad as it is, the decisions made or not made by the premier this summer or in August in particular, seem to have led many in the party to the point of deciding that somebody else should take over. So there appears to be some push within the party uh, to convince Kenny to resign and to put somebody else in there. Now, whether that's actually going to happen today, we don't know. Maybe there'll be some decision made about an earlier than scheduled leadership review or, or who knows what. But it's really quite incredible what's happened here. And you think about the political force that Jason Kenney was coming back to Alberta, merging these parties, romping to victory in that election in 2019 to, you know, fighting for his political life just two years later. Well, someone who's been following all of this very closely has a very interesting piece on all of this today in the Calgary Herald. CalgaryHerald.com is Alicia Corbella, columnist uh, for Post Media for the Calgary Herald. Alicia, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be there. Uh, so we haven't had any official word from this uh, caucus meeting. Are you hearing anything at this point? What's your sense of what's going on? No, it's radio silence. I've talked to some of the um, aides to various MLAs, but um, yeah, n- none of my messages are getting <laughs> yeah. um, answered. So um, I don't think they're allowed to use their phones during caucus meetings for obvious reasons. And um, so, yeah, I haven't heard anything, but uh, it, it should be, yeah, it should be interesting. I think one of the main concerns that Jason Kenney has is um, I think he's, 
depends on who you talk to. Some people say he's quite resigned to the fact that he's probably going to have to move on. And others say, yeah, he's not totally convinced that that's going to be necessary if COVID gets under control and people are happy again. But um, his concern is if they do enter into some kind of a race now for a new leader, that what will happen is the party will very much split down the mask, anti-mask, uh, co- passport, yeah. um, COVID passport or non-COVID passport divisions, and that it will split the party again, um, and we'll be back to square one with you know two right-of-center parties in the province and the NDP uh, scooting up the middle. Um, and also, even if the party doesn't split, that the rhetoric that will be coming out of the party with regard to this entire issue will damage the party's chances in a, in a, in a, in a future general election with the majority of voters. And so um, I think those are valid concerns. And, I, you know, he's right now more than trying to protect his own job. He's trying to protect the party that he helped birth. Right. Yeah. And um and I think that there's a lot of legitimacy there because, boy, is this the, the party's very split. My understanding is speaking to various MLAs in rural areas is that some of them can't even go grocery shopping Wow! Um, because people are so angry about the vaccine passport situation, even though it's up to, to businesses whether they adopt the vaccine passport or not. Yep. Um, people are furious about it. And, you know, it's really interesting. I had a call today from an old man. I don't know if you're getting these calls, uh, Rob, but this is a person who had lived uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And he's very opposed to anyone saying, can I see your papers? Um, and, uh, you know, listen, I have some sympathy for that. Like, But this is temporary. This is not uh, a government. And when I talked to Jason Kenney recently, he talked about how um, the reason why he's had such absolutist language all the time. So I asked him, like, what's with all this ever, never, always, best? Yeah. You know, like, what's with that kind of language? And he said, yeah, I was trying to make it clear to people that we are very eager to stop all restrictions. We're not a government that is going to try to keep things like if we ever do bring in a vaccine passport, it's not going to be permanent. This is just, this is, these are temporary measures to help society get through a very dire pandemic. And um, so, you know, Alberta is a tough province to govern. Well, yeah, I mean, you just look at the last several premiers, uh, you know, I, I think that speaks to all of it. Now you got this whole crazy situation on top of it. So it's interesting because, yeah, there have been rumblings of discontent for a while. I mean, obviously, Kenny had to kick out some MLAs earlier this year, but... Is it your sense then that things really turned on on the announcement last week, the fact that, A, there were people just opposed to to the vaccine passport anyway, and and those who really felt, even if they could live with it, that the premier had done a complete 180 and and broken a big promise? Oh, yeah. The, the, The side that's most angry about him and leading the rebellion against his leadership and wanting him to, you know, to to move along are the ones who are opposed to vaccine passports. They're the more um, passionate about his leadership and him breaking that rule, and he did it anyway. 
So, um, but there, there were, don't get me wrong. There was like the Lila hair and, um, uh, Richard Gottfried and people like that were, were bugging him for months. Look at, bring in a freaking passport. The businesses are asking for, you know, gyms and restaurants and small non-essential shops. They're saying like, we need something so that you can't lock us down again in the future. And um, so, you know, boy, it's, it's a tough one. And, you know, you look at that uh, Joel Mullen, he's the policy VP of the UCP, and he wrote that piece in the Western Standard um, talking about how, you know, uh, he really thinks highly of Jason Kenney. And he was, uh, you know, he said, until last week, I was one of Jason Kenney's most vocal supporters. I campaigned for him in both leadership races and the unity vote. In light of the choices he has made last week, I can no longer support him and indeed believe he must resign. And that's about the vaccine passport. I mean, you can call them REP all you want, their vaccine passports. And, um, you know, Nancy's going to vote today or the city council is going to vote today on making them mandatory in the city of Calgary. Um, but, you know, boy, in rural places, you know, our, our hospitals are full. But you know what? They're mostly full with rural folk, our city hospital. That's right. my understanding. And um, I have been told by two different MLAs that they know of party officials or riding officials, not party officials, but riding officials in various ridings that two are in hospital. And these are people who maybe were, didn't deny the existence of COVID, but were very anti-vax, anti-vaccine passport. Um, and, you know, a lot of these rural ridings, 45% of the population are vaccinated. And they're yeah. really dragging down Alberta's numbers. And, um, yeah, you know, so I'm hoping I can get either them uh, while they're in hospital or their families to talk to me and, and talk some sense into rural folk. Look, you know, you can say something's not real, but that doesn't mean it's not. Well, and, there's a uh, perception that it's an Edmonton and Calgary problem, right? But medicine hats getting hammered right now. And if there was a story today that a, a counselor there who had been really anti-mask, anti-public health measures is, is passed away from COVID. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's real. And it's not just in the big cities. Yeah. And, and so, you know, what, what would be great is that some of these people, while they're in hospital, pull out their cell phone, take a video, and actually warn people, look, I, I didn't think it was real. I didn't think I needed to get vaccinated. And here I am. And I wish I had. And, you know, like, I mean, there was those four radio talk show hosts in the U.S. who were pretty right. anti-vaccine, and they all died. And, you know, some of them said, you know, I wish I had uh, maybe gotten my vaccine before they died. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's very real. But, yeah, it's a real conundrum for the party because um, I think right now Jason Kenney is more concerned about saving the party from internal division on this issue. It is this issue. It's vaccine passports. Um, You know, people were calling for his head uh, before he brought in the vaccine passport. But that's what, those were people, you know, who didn't think he did enough to keep Alberta safe. Uh, but it's the vaccine passport bringing it in that has really shown the division lines. And it's, it's a very fraught 
situation. This is going to be a long caucus meeting. The Where, last yeah. one, I understand, was more than 12 hours. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Well, we'll see what comes out of all of it. In the meantime, uh, your piece is up. Uh, some interesting background on all of this. CalgaryHerald.com. Alicia, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Always, Rob. All right, cheers. Uh, Alicia Corbell, a columnist uh, for the Calgary Herald Post Media. So, yeah, so really interesting a snapshot on, on what she's hearing from those within the party and why the premier is suddenly in, in such a precarious situation. So, look, Jason Kenney has argued, now's not the time for any of this. we got a crisis to deal with. We'll deal with all of this after, which, in fairness, is, is true. It's, it's awfully self-serving. But I do wonder, what is the argument that those who say he's got to go and he's got to go now? What is their response to that? And who's waiting in the wings to take over? Like, I don't get the sense there's someone who's like super ambitious that wants to be the premier that is angling to force Kenny out so they can jump in and fulfill their destiny, right? I mean, so clearly this is coming from people, even if you disagree with them, that I think are just more about uh, a point they want to make or a certain principle on, on an issue. But it's not enough to say, yeah, I don't think Jason Kenney's the person right now. Well, who is? Because taking him out means putting somebody else in there. And yeah, here's a situation where this is for the UCP to figure out, but all of Alberta has a vested interest in you know whatever chaos ensues from throwing the premier overboard. One of the issues coming out of the election I want to focus on is the question of division, right? And, and I get that elections are kind of by nature uh, divisive, right? That a vote for us, don't vote for them. They're bad. You don't want those people in charge. You, you know, you're much better off with us, right? There's, there's a divisiveness, um, you know, an ugliness at times even, even in elections. But something feels different right now just in terms of how divided we already were as a country going into this election and the way in which maybe that was uh, exacerbated by this campaign. And it, it did feel to me like I think there was, you know, an attempt to capitalize on that, even maybe to some extent to foster division for short-term political purposes. And is that a problem? So I get that a lot of this is subjective. It's hard to measure how divided or unified we are as a country and whether it's it's getting bad or getting better. But it feels like we got a problem right now. And it's something that our next guest is is seeing. And there was a really interesting piece he wrote just before the election uh, at The Line, the newsletter, theline.substack.com. Joining us to talk more about this issue and uh, his piece is Andrew Potter, associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Andrew, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's good to see you here. Uh, talk to you again. Well, likewise, and always good to, to see you writing again, uh, putting the journalist cap back on. But yeah. um, anyway, you, so your thoughts on, you know, whether we're in a position to heal with, at the risk of sounding a little corny here, because that's always the, the talking point on election. I write, it's time to come together. I'm going to represent yeah. the people who didn't vote for me, all of that stuff. Yeah, I, I was I was struck by something the prime minister said in his uh, in his um, sort of acceptance speech or whatever you want to call it, right? His, his victory speech, where he said um, people have been claiming that uh, we are more divided than ever. And he said uh, he said I don't see it. Um, I think I think we're very uh, we're very united. Mm-hmm. And uh, that strikes me as surprising if 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 you've been paying any attention um, to the election, but also it's directly at odds with what he himself said uh, two years ago uh, on the eve of the of the 2019 federal election, where he acknowledged that we were very divided and uh, conceded that he might have some responsibility to bear on that. 
So, so if you take his, his acceptance speech uh, the other night uh, at face value, he is claiming that things have gotten better over the last two years on that front, which I think um, beggars belief, uh, to, put it, to put it bluntly. Right. So what, what's the case for, for arguing that things have been actually gotten worse? Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, if you look at a lot of the sort of the, 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 the number outcomes of the election, right, um, 58%, 59% turnout, right, quite possibly the lowest in the history of Confederation. Um, uh, every party doing poorly except now a, uh, call it a far-right party, the People's Party, right, um, a, very, a, a right-wing populist party doing better. Um, you have, uh, you know, none of the parties um, getting more than, than uh, you know, 31. I think the, the Tories got 33% of the vote, right? So, so it's just simply the, the electoral map says, look, this is a very divided country. And it's not just divided by the numbers. It's divided by, uh, by regions, right? Um, Jerry Butts, um, as people know, as Justin Trudeau's former uh, political advisor, now sort of a freelance uh, propagandist in the Liberal Party, um, was on Twitter uh, either yesterday or this morning, um, basically bragging that the Liberals had a very efficient vote, that they had managed to secure a victory with, with only 31%. And he was saying, um, aren't we genius? He literally, he literally <laughs> called his staff geniuses, right? Uh, so, so this all to me says, you know, this, this, is not, this does not strike me as, as the mark of unity. It's the mark of successful division. It felt like during the campaign, and, and and I don't know, it's hard to know where where or where, even whether the campaign turned, but the Liberals, the perception was they, they had a rocky start to the campaign, which I, I guess, no pun intended, because it, it did get kind of ugly. There was rocks being thrown at the Prime Minister. There were some events that had to be canceled, right? There was a very sort of angry contingent of, I don't know, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, and, and maybe people with some other causes running around, heckling him and protesting every appearance. And that night when his event got canceled because of security concerns and he came out to the microphone and it just felt like, A, I think these people are handing him a gift, but it's almost like, they saw an opportunity to exploit that. And there was that one moment where, you know, Trudeau heckled a heckler and said, you know, don't you have a, a hospital to go protest at? It kind of felt right. like, and you guys are using this. I mean, you used the word, you know, weaponizing division, you know, when you wrote your piece. And it kind of feels like maybe they were doing that. Is that your sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I didn't want to think that. Um, um, I was of the view that, that um, the prime minister called the election um, believing that the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the pandemic was going to be on the wane and believing that things would be more or less smooth. Yeah. Um, and Andrew Coyne, in his uh, uh, wrap-up of the, of the election uh, yesterday, claimed that it was, uh, it was deliberate, the timing was deliberate, that he called it deliberately uh, when he did, precisely to be able to capitalize on the anti-vaxxers and the anti-vaccine mandate types and so on, and, and to exacerbate these sorts of things. Um, I, I, I don't think I want to go that far, but I certainly do think that during the election, um, these these figures became uh, became useful uh, useful foils for, for 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 where he wanted the election to go mm-hmm. uh, certainly right like it almost felt like he was kind of running off, running against the PPC in a way and and so the PPC are feeding off the liberals the liberals are feeding off that 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 divisiveness in a way might have kind of helped both of those parties it seems like absolutely and and, and look I mean let's 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 uh, keep in mind right that that. Um, the, the pretext for calling the election was we have to do big things or big decisions to make about climate, about China, and about um, about the, the pandemic recovery. Um, that basically made no appearance, right? Uh, and um, when things got a bit hairy, when it looked like Aaron O'Toole was doing well, the conversation turned to those old uh, standbys of two-tiered health care, 
of uh, Albertan gun nuts, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, social cons coming to um, stop you from having abortions and these sorts of things. Yeah. Things that, that just are, are, are just not going to happen in this country, but, but serve as very useful, um, useful foils for, for, for uh, a, liberal, a liberal agenda. Um, and, and it kind of, it really bothers me, uh, even, even though I agree with a lot of those views, right? Like, I'm, I'm not sure. a gun nut, I'm, I'm pro-choice, right? <laughs> right. But I, I, I don't like seeing, I, I don't like seeing, um, and I, I say this as an Easterner, right? I don't like, I don't like it when Albertans are untrustworthy um, becomes, a, becomes an election theme. Yeah, <laughs> but you know it's interesting because the pandemic has, I think, highlighted some divisions or created some divisions, and things have been, you know, here in Alberta, it seems pretty polarized. Where you got a premier who's who's being pulled between those who think he's not doing enough to deal with the pandemic, those who think he's doing too too much, and you know, vaccines, you know, vaccine passports, that's all added to to a lot of this division. So. Even absent this election, do you, do you think that, that has either contributed to, you know, exacerbated some of the divisions that exist in this country? Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the things uh, I, I put special blame on Trudeau in my piece, even though conceding that you know everybody has a has a role to play in all this. Um, but the, the reason why I put special blame on Trudeau is that he has a special responsibility as a prime minister to sort of understand where the country's at, right? And if, if you don't appreciate that there are that there are leaders in this country, the provincial level in particular, who are struggling with divisions in their own provinces, right? Who are, who are barely hanging on, not just to power, but to social cohesion, right? And struggling with with, with social forces. Um, why you would throw an elect a federal election in the midst of that instead of right. you know trying trying to bring that together or let, letting those forces play, well, giving people the, the the leeway and the elbow room and the political space they need, breathing room. Why you would think that a federal election which is going to be divisive anyway, is going to help any of this. Uh, I find that mind-boggling. Right. And so in that sense, I think any attempt to, to change uh, tack here would, would seem disingenuous, but you make a compelling argument. Look, the prime minister has a responsibility, a duty, uh, to try to unify this country. So what, what can he do at this point, do you think? Uh, at this point, uh, I mean, uh, if, if there's one sort of um, uh, useful thing to come out of this, it's that um, there is there's now a liberal... Um, in Alberta, right, and I believe there's one in Saskatchewan, um, and so, so at, at the very least, um, there will be voices representing those parts of the country around the cabinet table. Um, but um, you know, at a certain point, path dependency comes on. You can only give so many hostages to fortune, and and uh, not have them have them. Yeah, you know, those bills come due. I mean, and it's not just it's, and it's not just Alberta and Saskatchewan and the the sort of demonization of them. It's it's the um, pandering and refusal to confront uh, a Quebec premier who is outright nationalist and outright hostile to charter rights and freedoms, right? Um, how, how Trudeau sort of now comes out, uh, you know, in defense of the charter and so on, I don't see it, right? A lot of this is just, um, you know, ultimately, uh, I think we need fewer elections in this country, not more. I used to believe the opposite. I used to think elections were great. I've come to the conclusion that elections are bad for the country. Um, and the fewer of them we have, the better. Um, so uh, despite his threat to uh, bring us back to the polls in 18 months, I hope it's a lot longer than that. Yeah, I think you make a compelling argument there. Uh, <laughs> your piece is up, as mentioned, uh, The Line, uh, the newsletter, theline.substack.com. Andrew Potter, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care, guys. You as well. There you go. Andrew Potter, uh, former journalist, uh, author. He's uh, now an associate professor, graduate program director as well at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. So some interesting observations about, you know, kind of what divides us as Canadians, why it's worse now and how 
Maybe the prime minister bears some responsibility for that and certainly how his election bears some responsibility for that. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Again, you can reach us, 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. Lots to talk about today. We're obviously uh, awaiting to see if anything comes out of this UCP caucus meeting happening at McDougal Center this morning in downtown Calgary. It's an in-person meeting. Uh, apparently, a lot of very open discussion about where the party goes from here and whether Jason Kenney will continue to lead them. So like I say, anything comes out of that, we'll get it to you. Alicia Corbella has an interesting piece today in the Herald on all of this. She's going to join us coming up at 2 o'clock. We'll talk more about the federal election in this hour. Later in this hour, uh, Andrew Potter from McGill University wrote an interesting piece this week on how divided we are as a country and how this campaign might have exacerbated some of that. We'll look at that issue coming up after 1.30. But let's talk about turnout in this election. Did you go vote? I mean, certainly with the advance polls, the mail-in ballots, there was uh, lots of opportunity to do so. But ultimately, turnout comes down to, sure, you know, accessibility, but also whether you care, whether you're engaged. You know, this is a a pandemic election, and and that's going to have some impact on, you know, people's comfort level, leaving the house or, you know, going to a polling station, that sort of thing. But what's interesting, I found, looking back at turnout in recent elections, since 2000, Prior to this election, since 2000, every election has had turnout over 60%, with the exception of one, 2008. Now, the 2008 election was just two years after the previous election. A lot of people wondered in 2008 why we were having that election. So some similarities to this time around. The turnout was 58.8% in 2008, uh, sitting at around 59.5%. Uh, for this election. So it's a big drop-off, 67% in 2019, 68% in 2015. So why did people stay away? Was it just the pandemic? Were there other reasons? Uh, Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, some of these questions is someone who has studied the issue very closely over the years, Dr. Richard Johnson, Professor Emeritus, uh, Department of Political Science at uh, UBC Vancouver. Professor Johnston, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Was that number 59%, was that kind of more or less what you were expecting? Were you surprised at all by that number? Well, first thing, the number isn't really 59%. When all of the mail-in ballots are counted, it'll be more like 63 or 64. If if, uh, the expected number of ballots are actually returned, something like 5% of all votes cast will have been by mail. So it's it's low, but it's not 59. It's Okay. More like sixty-three, sixty-four. So, but it's still it's it's low by historic standards, and on the low side, particularly for the decades, the last decade of elections. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's not great. Um, it's not as bad as two thousand and eight, right. but it certainly has gone down since twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen was actually a call it a local high point. I mean. Back in the 80s and before, we had turnouts in the, regularly in the 70s, occasionally pushing 80. But that was the post-war generation. That was before baby boomers came of age and all that. Yeah. Uh, turnout plummeted in the 90s. It inched back up in the early knots. 
a lot of the story of the 90s and the early noughts was of the degree of competitiveness in the system. If you cast your mind back to the 90s, the Liberals always won. The only question was by how much. And indeed, local candidates tended to win with outright majorities. Then with the reintegration of reform in the Conservatives, the national system became competitive again. And so it actually did local races. And so from 2004 on, 2008 being a bit of an exception, from 2004 on, turnout had gone back up because there was something to fight for again. And then 2015, honestly, the story is Justin Trudeau. He was the most magnetic figure on the landscape, arguably, since his father in, yeah. in 1968. And basically what he's done in the last six years is tarnish his brand. I mean, that to me is yeah. kind of that's the biggest thing going on here is that the enthusiasm for the prime minister in particular has gone down, uh, and as it is not an accident that the closely spaced elections uh, have lower turnout as well. People do want to have their say; they just don't want to have it all the time. <laughs> well, and it raises the question of at what point we should care or worry or celebrate. I mean, how significant is the number? Because clearly, we're going to have some apathetic people out there and and in a society like ours you have a right to be apathetic so do we obsess over the number maybe more than we should or what what are your thoughts i don't think we have a very good answer to that question um certainly it's you would never say i would never say that it reflects some sort of satisfaction with the system no things are fine so why bother um on the other hand it's not really helpful to moralize about it either, but I think we want to ask ourselves, what gets someone to the polls? And I think we have to step back and say, first of all, it's not as if we're all sitting around our desks deliberating with ourselves or with our partners or whatever. In fact, it's a social phenomenon with forces, some forces that inhibit turnout and other forces that uh, facilitate turnout. Some of these are in society, right? So, uh, People are less and less likely to live in detached houses. Right? The uh, a neglected, a, a little understood, or a little appreciated fact about turnout is uh, is that it's important to be asked. Yeah. And there was a day in which the parties could carpet the landscape with canvassers, come back to your detached house with a with a front door and an address beside it three times if they thought that was worth their while. And they had they had an army of mainly female volunteers who had time in their hands and were willing to do this. That's not the way society is organized anymore. Increasingly, people are living in high-rise apartments or at least relatively high-density things without addresses on the street. Parties have the right to go into these places, but canvassing a high-rise apartment building doesn't have the same sort of effect as canvassing a neighborhood of detached houses. Um, and it's, it's increasingly hard for parties to come up with volunteers because a larger percent of the population is mobilized into paid labor, right? You don't, you don't have uh, middle-class households where the wife stays at home, uh, available for tasks for which she's not paid. That's not the way the world is. You don't have families of the size that you used to have that anchor people to their neighborhoods. Yeah. No, I, I live in a detached house neighborhood. I'm, I'm wired into a whole bunch of networks. Well, that's not the way the world works anymore. So there's a whole lot of sociological factors that in some sense make people less linked into uh, the kind of gravitational forces in society that get people to places like the polling station. 
There are those who say, you know, mandatory voting is a way to fix all of that because all of that becomes moot. People don't have a choice as to whether to vote. You don't need to worry about all of that to, you know, get out the vote effort. What are your thoughts on the idea of mandatory voting? Um, at the level of principle, I have, I have no problem with it. I'm not, I don't know if you've ever been to Australia, but the thing that strikes me when I go there, and often I talk to civil society people there or to academics, and I'm immediately struck that it is actually a much more mobilized political culture than Canada. People actually kind of understand what they're doing in ways that we don't. And that's true, by the way, for media commentators. And it is a compulsory voting country. The problem is, how do you get there, right? Australia did not become a compulsory voting country because a bunch of philosophers sat around and said it would be a good thing. It was a political calculation made about a hundred years ago. Ironically, it was made by parties of the right who were afraid that the labor movement would roll over everything else and dominate the politics from the left, and they thought they'd better make sure that all those middle-class people are required to go out and vote for parties of the right. Turns out that its impact was the opposite. But that was a political calculation made at a very specific point in time. I don't think that you would get a positive response from the Canadian population at the thought of being required to vote. I mean, it's it's not like having a needle stuck in your arm, but think about the explosion created by the move in so many provinces towards vaccine mandates, right? Okay. I mean, it sounded... I happen to think it's a good idea. Overwhelming majorities of Canadians seem to think it was a good idea. But once you start to implement it, all of a sudden you realize, well, there are other issues here. There are privacy issues and, and choice issues and so on. And many people would say that the right not to vote is as precious as the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I tend to come down on that, but I've, I've heard some compelling arguments on the other side. Now, it's interesting you mention Australia because, as I understand, they're also one of the countries that has elections on a weekend, and that came up in this campaign because of the concern sure. over using schools. If we voted on Saturday or Sunday, that would be a moot point in terms of, you know, worried about, you know, running into kids in schools, et cetera. Why don't we vote on weekends? I think the answer there is religious, right? That that it goes back to conceptions of the Sabbath, and really it was sort of Sunday voting. You know, notice Australia votes on Saturday, not Sunday. So that's that's an important consideration. But the but the 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 weekend, but especially Sunday, was this sacrosanct day, and it's especially true in Protestant communities that you know you you were to stay home and c- contemplate the eternal or whatever, even to the point you may remember. Back when Eden's existed, Eden's used to draw its curtains on Sundays, right? So mm-hmm. in this country, certainly in, in its predominantly Protestant parts, you would never get agreement to, to vote on Sunday. Saturday, maybe, but somehow that never seemed to come up. That if you're, if you're really talking about minimizing, at least in those days, if you're talking about minimizing the constraints on getting to the polls, Sunday would be the day. Um, I think it's a good idea, personally. In fact, I'm I'm on board with the notion that we should really think in terms of voting week. There's no reason why we can't actually have a more aggressive set of advance polls yeah. in person or by mail. Well, I voted at an advance poll. It was great. <laughs> well, I think I think actually, the, for reasons related to what I was saying earlier, I think the parties would like it as well. Uh, it, it's it's a puts a big burden on parties to get their voters to the polls on a single day, the election day, and that's, of course, it's this awkward day of the week. So I think there's a lot of reasons um, 
for shifting to a weekend vote. And at, the, at this stage in our history, I don't actually think there's a lot of resistance to it. It's relatively simple. You know, it could be done essentially as a regulatory change, may require legislation, but I don't think it'd be hugely contentious. So I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Well, will leave it there. Professor Johnson, appreciate your insight in all of this, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. You're welcome. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Professor Richard Johnston, Professor Emeritus Political Science at, at UBC and somebody who's been uh, studying election turnout uh, in Canada for, as he said, a number of decades. So some interesting insight. I, I, I'm, I'm a believer in, when it comes to voting in, in the right to be apathetic. Uh, I'm not in favor of mandatory voting. I'm not even necessarily too worked up about what the number happens to be in any given election. You know, we've seen in provincial elections that number below 50%, municipal elections, that's pretty much the norm. So ultimately, yeah, you have a right to not care is what it comes down to. I I still think there is some civic duty obligation sort of aspect to voting. It is important, I think, and, you know, we should appreciate that we have the right to do so. But, I mean, it's it's your choice, I think, whether you you utilize that, um, that duty. Uh, but your thoughts on, on what we could do maybe to make it a little easier for those who want to vote. I mean, the idea, and I think what we did this, you know, this election with the uh, few days of advance voting, why not make that the norm? Why we're so averse to voting on Saturdays or Sundays, I don't know. Because, yeah, you vote during the week. Well, we're going to put polling stations in schools. Well, guess what? During the week, the kids are using the schools. And in a pandemic, that was, there was some heightened concern around that. The schools are empty on the weekend. Now, there are obviously people who do go to work on the weekend, but most people work Monday to Friday, and it becomes a whole issue with, uh, I got to zip away from work to try to get down to the, the voting station, etc. I mean, the advanced voting was open on a weekend. So that's always weird to me. Let's, yeah, have an election on a Saturday or Sunday. Why, why are we against that? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.